Kerry, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Now, I want to begin uh, by discussing your background a bit. How did you grow up? Tell me about your skating career. Um, yeah, so I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, in the heart of Amish country. My mom was a teacher. My dad was a lawyer. I had a pretty normal, um, I don't know, upper middle class suburban upbringing, except for one thing, which was the figure skating. Uh, from a pretty young age, I was an intense, um, elite competitive figure skater. And I left school every day around like 10 a.m. to go to the rink and train. And I did a lot of my classes, just independent study or remotely. And uh, I would be at the rink until like five or six and then, you know, do my homework in the car on the way back. Uh, I skated pairs, which is where, you know, the guy throws you around and it looks all dangerous and shit. And, you know, we, we were good. We, um, we made it to nationals. We were fifth at nationals um, at the sixth of eight levels um, two years in a row. And then after our second year of competing together, my pair partner decided to branch out and find another partner. And I just fell apart because figure skating is a sport where there are so many more women than men that it's incredibly easy for a guy to find another partner but for like a female skater you know that might happen you know it might take days or weeks or it might never happen and after a few months without finding a partner i realized that i was at least going to have to take a season off from competing and um you know at that point i guess i was 17 and that is also a sport where you're over the hill by your early 20s. So taking a whole year off at 17 seemed like that was probably the death knell for my career, which was my whole uh, identity and my whole sort of life and vision for my future. And at 17, I was already kind of a hot mess. Like I was already really struggling with depression and had some suicide attempts and had been struggling with eating disorders quite a bit. And I did not really have the coping mechanisms to handle having my old life life blow up like that. Uh, obviously I was a very privileged kid, but I also had a lot of mental struggles and was not really equipped to have the support to deal with that. And so I completely just unraveled. And after my pair partner decided to branch out in like early part of that year, which was like probably February, March, um, by midsummer, I was doing, you know, I had moved to doing hard drugs and I was living on the streets and doing sex work by you know, the time the next school year started. So I fell apart pretty rapidly, which, you know, to be clear, this was not like, oh, I smoked pot and then sort of that was a gateway drug to suddenly one day I'm a heroin addict. Like I was very much on a clear path to self-destruction. Like my, I think the aim was that I wanted to die and really just sort of didn't have the, um, I don't know, just didn't have the wherewithal to actually do it. And I was trying to sort of kill myself through other means at that point. So um, yeah, that was a long answer to your question. Well, no, but it, it also hits upon my next question, which is the commitment to high level sport, right? These days, 
uh, you were a figure skater in the 90s. These days, you have things like social media. Um, what impact do you think high-level sport, the commitment to it, has on the human psyche in general? Oh, that's such an interesting question. So I think it depends a little bit on the sport, first of all. And I think in the case of skating, like even with a pair partner, it is a very individual sport. Like it is not a team sport. Even if there's a figure skating team, it's just a bunch of individuals who are competing against each other and all representing the same country. Like it's not a team effort. Even when you have a pair partner, you know, that all that meant is that I had one other person who was, you know, a guy who was four years older than me. Like I was 15, he was 19 when we started skating together. Um, and that was the person I was spending most of my time around, but that's really, uh, you know, a, a work wife. Like that's like just having a work relationship, you know, it doesn't, you know, being that involved in skating doesn't teach you anything about normal socializing or how to, you know, just have friends and normal social interactions at all. And the degree to which I didn't learn very basic social skills, um, is kind of shocking in retrospect. But, you know, the other thing is when you're intensely in a sport like that, like skating in particular, for instance, you know, when I started trying to do a double axle, which is a jump, it's kind of like a make it or break it jump in your career. Like if you don't get a double axle, you're really not going anywhere. If you do get a double axle, like you have some chance of sort of making it to the next uh, tier of, of your career. And I think I started working on a double axle in the beginning of sixth grade. And I didn't get it until I think the end of the summer after eighth. So that meant I spent my entire middle school failing on the same thing, like hundreds of times a day. I was, you know, falling on this same jump hundreds of times a day for three years, which at the time just seemed normal because everyone else I knew was, you know, in skating and doing the same sorts of things. But as an adult, looking back, I sort of think about like, that must change your psyche and just how you approach life and the world when, you know, in some really formative years, you are so concretely failing like hundreds of times a day at the one thing that can advance your career. Cause it's not like some endeavors or like arts where it may be, there's some level of subjectivity, like landing a jump or not is very clear you either fell or you didn't, you know? So it's like every failure is actually like physically, you know, you're feeling it physically. It's not even like failing a test. Like you're physically failing at the literal same task hundreds of times a day. And as an adult looking back on that, that's kind of wild. Like, I think now I'd be like, if I failed at the same thing for like three straight years, I think I'd be like, okay, um, life is short. Time to throw the towel and like, I will go do something else, you know? Yeah. Now, I teach criminal justice courses, right? And so I'd like to segue a bit into your experience with the criminal justice system and the circumstances surrounding your arrest and subsequent imprisonment. Um, yeah, so after my eating career fell apart, I said, you know, I got into drugs and um, I will greatly condense that and say that I continued to do drugs for the next nine years. I was bumbling my way through college at the time. I was sometimes homeless, sometimes in college. I was sometimes doing sex work. I was sometimes working in a genetics lab. Like I was, my life was all up and down in that time, but I was generally um, a train wreck, but also like a functional addict because I was slowly 
making my way through college. And by the time that I finally got arrested, I was at the very end of what should have been my last semester at Cornell because I I transferred, I started at Rutgers and then transferred to Cornell and I got arrested at what should have been the very end of my senior semester, which uh, I was 26 at that point. So obviously I took the scenic route to get there. Um, one of my friends used to say, one of my friends who was also like derailed his life with drugs and is also now out and doing really well. Uh, he used to say like, they always say college is the best years of your life. So like, why not take my time? <laughs> um, but I, you know, took my time and then got arrested and I got sentenced to two and a half years in prison. And I ended up doing 21 months of that. Uh, which was just because that was the that was a very like black and white law in terms of when your earliest release would be for a nonviolent uh, flat bid in New York. You do five sevenths of your time. So I did 21 months out of a two and a half year sentence and then got out and uh, was on parole for two years. Most of what I teach is rehabilitation. Are prisons designed to rehabilitate in your experience? Do they do a good job of that as they claim they do? I mean, not in the slightest. Like I, I you know, I, I, I can't even sort of adequately put into words how badly they fail at that. Um, even the sort of most progressive-minded facilities in this country, at any rate, you know, are really just not set up to help people succeed afterwards. Um, and, you know, when you when you sort of step back and think about it, it's not surprising, right? Because locking someone in a cage like an animal and treating them like an object or a number for years is just not a recipe for success. And you can't just, you know, add some therapy to that situation and think that's going to be rehabilitative. Like, it seems to me that the best prisons are able to do at this point is sort of break even, like not make people worse. Um, most of them don't succeed in that. But like in a best case scenario, maybe you offer enough therapy and support to mitigate the additional damage you're doing by incarcerating someone. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, there's no place for punishment or that there's, you know, that that everybody should, you know, just have no consequences or anything like that, obviously. But currently the the currently what we're doing clearly doesn't work when you look at the recidivism rates um but it's also aside from the data and what we can look at objectively there's the sort of subjective human common sense um you know what what sort of human common sense would tell us when we look at it if you are locking people in you know small rooms for years and subjecting them to a very fickle world of physical and sexual abuses and inconsistent rules where people convey to them in myriad ways on a daily basis that they do not matter and that they are less than human. Um, those things are not conducive to rehabilitation or to creating public safety. And I think one of the one of the things that got us here today is the fact that I think a lot of people frame these debates in terms of punishment and what a criminal deserves. And 
that is not the entirety of what we even think our prison system is supposed to do. Like at a minimum, we would think that our prison system would have a public safety purpose. And if the people that come out of prison are more damaged than when they went in, then that is not serving a public safety purpose because then you're creating more dangerous people. So aside from questions of punishment versus rehabilitation, just the issue of public safety should imply that we would approach um, incarceration differently. Now, from what you've said, it seems like you went into prison with some mental health issues. Uh, there's a discussion in New York, I know, and other places in the country about how well the criminal justice system takes care of folks with mental health problems. Um, and of course, that's an extension of the rehabilitation question. What was your experience like within the criminal justice system in that regard? I mean, in the best case scenario, you might get medications. Like you're not doing therapy. I don't know any place that has therapy. Like they might have group counseling um, and you might see a psychiatrist for 15 minutes just for meds check like every few months. But, you know, that that's pretty much the extent of it, which again, that that's sort of, the best you're likely to get from that is like treading water. Um, but, you know, I, I think the average experience is far worse than what I described in the book and far worse than what I see in New York. I, I think a lot of other places do it, frankly, much worse. Um, I'm currently in Los Angeles and I now work for the LA Times. I started there in January. And, um, you know, there's the lawsuits over, there are multiple lawsuits pending against the LA jails. Uh, and it's kind of wild. If you're teaching a criminal justice class, your students might appreciate this. There are three major class action lawsuits against the LA jails right now. One of them started in the 70s. It was filed in 76. And the first like court order um, consent decree, I forget exactly what it was, if it was a settlement agreement or a consent decree, was in like 78 or 79. They have a no at no point since then complied with the stipulations from 1979. Like that's still ongoing. Then there's another case um, over use of force that started in like 2012. And then there's a case where the DOJ sued because the jails were doing such a bad job of dealing with mental health. Um, so mental health has actually come up in two of, two of these three cases, the one from the 70s and the DOJ one. And in the one from the 70s, which is the Rutherford case, that was over general conditions, but it also included mental health. One of the things that they've been dinged for recently is in the inmate reception center, like the booking processing facility, they haven't been moving people with severe mental health issues through to evaluation quickly enough. So they've been caught um, routinely chaining them to benches for you know hours at a time. And when I say hours, I mean, there's like one of the more egregious ones was there was a dude that was severely mentally ill chained to a bench for 96 hours. They're not letting them up to go to the bathroom. And the court ordered them to please not chain people to benches for more than four hours at a time. And yet they are still routinely violating that stipulation as well. Um, so yeah, so that's what mental health care looks like behind bars is there are, you know, there are some places where that is just chaining you to a bench for days at a time. 
Now, you mentioned uh, what you've written in the book. I know you've also written about the racial inequities in, in the prison system and how you benefited from those. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, sure. Um, there's so many ways to sort of dig into this. Um, I think, obviously, we know a lot about what that looks like on the front end. I think that there's sort of a lot of understanding about the way in which Black and brown communities are often over-policed and Black and brown people are disproportionately represented in carceral populations, um, even for crimes that they commit at the same rate as white people, such as drug crimes. Um, drug use is relatively consistent um, among, you know, various key demographics that are still arrested at very different rates. Um, but, you know, that sort of disparity sort of snowballs behind bars, or it can. Um, because in many states, including New York, prisons were built in predominantly rural white um, areas, which can often mean that a lot of the staff are white. And obviously, this is not true at every prison, but it is a dynamic that exists in many places where prisons were brought in as a sort of like jobs program for dying rural towns. New York's a great example of that, but that same dynamic happened in Texas and Nebraska um, and some federal prisons also, you know, operated that same way where they were putting these prisons in rural areas that really wanted them. There was actually a really crazy phase in like the 90s where towns were competing with each other to try to get prisons, like showing up at prison board meetings in costumes and singing songs. There's a song on YouTube like, is we or isn't we going to get a prison when one town was like campaigning to get a prison? But these are all, you know, white rural towns. And the result is that now you have prisons that are predominantly holding black and brown people that are situated in very conservative white rural communities. Again, that's obviously not descriptive of all prisons, but um, the location and demographic who's inside um, in many prisons. And there's been some interesting reporting on what that can mean on the ground. You know, among people behind bars, like we sort of knew that if you were black or brown, you were going to have a tougher time if you were housed at an upstate prison. And there were an awful lot of those. And um, the New York Times did some really great reporting around that in like 2016, 2017, I think, where they looked at disciplinary cases and parole outcomes at prisons that were predominantly white staff versus, you know, system-wide. And, you know, their, their findings sort of, you know, cohered with all the things that we'd anecdotally told each other behind bars for years. So that was really interesting to see. But, you know, one of the upshots of that is that if that means that Black and Brown people end up being treated worse behind bars or are more likely to be subjected to discipline, you know, you're seeing the same sort of over-policing of those communities in the free world mirrored in the, in, you know, in the inside. And that means that they're more likely to end up in solitary confinement, lose their good time, you know, be more traumatized and end up doing more time for the same offenses. And then you add on top of that biases in parole boards, which have historically been predominantly white as well. And then on top of that, when people are released, you know, they're still released back to dealing with the same systemic racism that would have haunted them before prison. Now, 
once you were released from prison, you segued into journalism. Why that transition? Um, so first of all, I want to say, by the way, if it seems like I'm fidgeting and looking off screen a lot, I just got this plant and I keep playing with it. It's actually fake, but it's what's distracting me in case you're like, why is she looking to the side all the time? I just got this yesterday. Um, Not at all. Anyway, <laughs> um, so in terms of why I went into journalism, you know, I had always been into writing. I'd written some for the student newspaper when I was in college. But when I got out, this just really happened to be the first field that I could find a job in with a felony and no degree. Because although I had gotten very close to completing school, I hadn't actually finished. And I still had to finish that when I got out. So in the meantime, I started freelancing at the local newspaper, um, the Ithaca Times. Uh, somebody that I used to get high with actually called me and was like, hey, my friend is actually an editor at the Ithaca Times. And you know, would like to interview someone who has been in the jail here and would you mind talking to her? So I did. And then afterwards she gave me some freelance assignments and um, yeah, that, you know, from there that sort of snowballed and I ended up becoming staff there and then uh, just, you know, continued with journalism after that. How did corrections and income about? Um, so I had kept a journal through the time that I was locked up. And then, you know, when I got out, I sort of started putting together a book, but quickly realized I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't have any, you know, public presence or any sort of cred as a writer. And I decided to sort of put that aside and just try to be the best reporter that I could be and figure if a book happened someday, it happened. And if not, you know, so... Then in like 2018, I actually did a tweet thread about my dog and Terry Gross saw it and had me on fresh air. And after that, um, I got some agents who were interested in, you know, if I wanted to write a book. And uh, I ended up around that time also meeting up with a, another agent and one of them I signed with wrote a book proposal and then sold it in like 2019 and started writing the book in 2020. So I spent a lot of the pandemic writing a deep, dark, personal memoir, which I don't recommend. Not a fun way to spend the pandemic. How important, and obviously you think it's important and it is important, how important are journalists and the media to diving into the difficulties, the inequities behind what goes on in the criminal justice system. Why do they play such a vital role? Well, I think that there's not a lot of oversight of prisons in many states. And um, I think that in one of the huge things that reporters can do in covering criminal justice is playing a sort of oversight role. Um, because they'll report on things that it might not be in anyone else's best interest to make public. Um, and I think in Texas that felt especially urgent because there is no independent oversight of the Texas prison system. So oftentimes, you know, what we would write was, was sort of it. Um, you know, and I mean, I also think just because prisons and jails are so opaque by design, you know, they're literally uh, behind razor wire. Like, it's so impossible for the average person to know what goes on behind bars that it's 
particularly important to have people that are willing to be a voice to what is going on there. Now, you mentioned that you jump around a lot. You go from one place to the other. What do you have coming up? What upcoming projects, books, pieces do you have in the works? Uh, well, you know, like I said, I'm at the LA Times, so I've been covering the Sheriff's Department here. I have a lot of stuff about the Sheriff's Department in the jail that I've been working on. And um, I've been doing a uh, project, um, international reporting project uh, about fentanyl in Mexico. So uh, sort of wild, like full circle moment. You know, I got a tip in like December that there were pharmacies in Mexico that were selling counterfeit pills that were, you know, perks that were perks and like oxys that were actually fentanyl. And obviously everyone knows this has been happening on the street, but it was new that there were indications it might be happening in pharmacies. Um, so my colleague and I went down there and we bought, you know, a number of pills from, you know, a few dozen pills from different pharmacies in like eight different cities. And we did some testing on them and we sent some, you know, sent some swabs for testing and, you know, found that about half of the half of the things that we purchased were not what they said they were. And many of them were laced with fentanyl or meth. So that's been, um, that's been a lot of what we've been working on is, uh, you know, weirdly for my job, going and buying drugs, <laughs> which seems, uh, seems like a very weird full circle situation. If you were to pinpoint, right, one, kind of element of the criminal justice system that needs particular attention. Is it oversight over prosecutors and the limitations on prosecutorial discretion? Is it the prison system? Is it uh, the kind of oversight of the defense bar to ensure that all criminal defendants have adequate lawyering? What one element, if obviously that's possible, which I'm certain it's not, by the way, would you seek to address first? I think it entirely depends on the jurisdiction. You know, I mean, I think there's some places where the prison system is just horrific and stands out as the thing that really needs oversight. But there's some places where I think, you know, it's the indigent representation that is horrible um, and the conflicts of interest that exist in the appointment procedures in many jurisdictions. Um, and then, you know, there's there's some places where prosecutors um, act above the law. There's some places where, you know, the problem is the is where I think the sort of standout problem is policing. I'm, I'm not sure if I would say that's the standout problem in L.A., although there are literal gangs within the sheriff's department here. And if you haven't heard of it, I would encourage you to just Google LASD gangs. I mean, it's it's really quite shocking. I don't mean that in the sort of like sense when people say, oh, cops are all a gang, like not like that. They, they literally have gangs within the department. Um, I'm still not sure that's the most problematic part of the justice system here, but it is certainly shocking. So I think that the sort of biggest thing to tackle varies by jurisdiction, which probably is part of what makes it overall so hard to, uh, for, you know, for people to know where to start. Well, Kerry, I appreciate your insight and your time. Thank you so much. Very much appreciated. Thanks for having me.